0: Well, hey, man, how you doing? Good. Pastor PJ's out. Uh, I have no idea where he is. I have no idea what he's doing. One thing I learned about being on staff here is that uh, all of us pastors are so busy, we just kind of just go with it and say, sure, I'll, I'll take it on for you. So I'm Pastor Doug, if you guys don't know me. Um, I've, I've been here for about four months, so uh, you've probably seen me around. I know I've met many of you guys, don't know you all super well, but I'm excited to get you to know you guys better uh, brief background on on me. I'm I'm married. Been married for 10 years. We've Got two little kids, uh, six and she's almost seven, and a four-year-old, both girls. They're so sweet and lovely, and um, make my life easy. I look at families that have boys, and I say, man, that looks really hard. Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. But uh, we, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about that, yeah. I've been telling my wife for years, when they turn teenagers, I need to go on a sabbatical, uh, just for those junior high years, even though I know that's the years they need me the most, but um, that's the plan. Um, So, uh, I'm excited. I get to be over our alliance ministry here at Compass, which is kind of our singles, young professionals ministry. I'm really excited about that. It's been a great fit for us, my wife and I, to be in that ministry. And also for the new ministry that we're launching uh, for parents of junior hires and high schoolers, I worked with youth for a long time. Uh, at our last church for about four or five years and um it's just a, it's going to be a blessing to get to work with parents and couples of junior highers and high schoolers in the new ministry abide so if you know people or you yourself are a good fit for that love to have you in the fall when we launch that ministry so that would be great well um i want to pray and then we're going to jump into the book of nahum a fun preaching assignment from pastor pj so <laughs> let's pray father we're so grateful uh That you have us here this morning. Thank you for giving us another day in which we could seek to do our best to honor and glorify you, Lord. We know that we are nothing without you, that we are but dust, but yet you give us life and new life in Christ. Um, We want to honor you with the life you've given us. We want to honor you with the time you've given us. And I think of these men who are here so early in the morning to do that very thing, Lord. I pray that you would use this time to glorify your name. I pray that you would use this time uh, to cause these men to be edified, encouraged challenged by your word that they may know it better that they may know it well and able to apply it to their lives in a way that causes real and effective change that causes a desire for you that grows a delight in you that increases daily lord i pray for these men in this room for their marriages pray for their relationships with their kids with their family members with the lost that they may be witnessing to at church or at uh, at the workplace just pray that you would strengthen them, that you would help them to be leaders in the home and in the workplace as they are called to be, Lord, not because we're so worthy or because we're so equipped, but because that's the role you've given us as men. So we thank you for that great and mighty responsibility. Pray that you would strengthen us to do the work you've called us to do and use your word to equip us in every way that we need to be equipped. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for what he's done for us and ask for this morning to be honoring to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you guys ever... uh Said something that you just immediately regret, just right out the gate. Just said something, and you say, "Man, I, I wish I could take that back." And seeing as most of you guys probably here are married, I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, there was a moment where I I said something, and I, I I really wanted to take it back. See, I was I was at a high school football game, and I had just met my my friend, my best friend Jake's cousin, and. Jake's cousin was a little bit different than I was. You see, I was a, a six foot four beanpole, weighed about 160 pounds. You could probably just pick me up and snap me in half. And this guy that I met, he was a little different than me. He was about uh, six foot two, weighed about 275 pounds of pure muscle. He could, clearly had a few broken noses and some cauliflower ears because he was a heavyweight UFC fighter. I introduced myself to my uh, Jake's Jake's cousin. And, um, you know, being that invincible high school student that I was, I thought I'd be funny, and I looked dead at him and said, so you want to do this or what? Serious as I could be, just shook his hand, so you want to do this or what? And he just changed his countenance from like, hey, nice to meet you, to absolutely. He started walking towards the football field, and with every step, I was just going, man, that was a bad call. Because the guy just didn't turn around. I mean, it was probably a 50-yard walk to the football field from where we're at, and every single step I was thinking, he knows knows I'm joking. He knows I'm joking, right? He he knows I'm joking. I don't think he knows I'm joking. I'm concerned I'm going to (laughs) die. I immediately wanted to take it back. And so what I did in that moment is, uh, before I thought I was going to die, I wanted to take that moment back because I really hadn't considered who this person was that I was saying this to, right? I wasn't just saying this to a buddy. I was saying this to a trained fighter who was able and willing to take me down. So eventually he turned around and laughed and let me go back, and I survived that day. I didn't die. But we we all too often fail to recognize and rightly respond to God in the fullness of his character. We, we often fail to rightly respond to God in the fullness of his character because we tend to emphasize the attributes that we like about God. We tend to, to focus on his love. We tend to focus on his grace. We tend to focus on his mercy. These are things that we hear often. We, we like them. We, en, we enjoy to hear these particular things about God. We don't tend to consider often his justice, his wrath, his anger. Those are attributes of God that he has within himself and that he executes and exercises and yet we don't tend to consider them often. And so if we want to rightly respond to God, if we want to respond to God in the way that we should, in the appropriate way, we need not only to understand his mercy and his grace, but that he's a God of justice who pours out wrath upon his enemies, right? Because if we don't fully understand that, we can't fully understand God's provision for us, the scope of his mercy and grace for us. And so today, what we get in the book of Nahum is a a narrow focus on this particular issue, the justice of God, the judgment of God, the anger of God, the wrath of God. It's a major theme in the book of Nahum is the promise of judgment against God's enemies. If you you think about the other prophets, you hear this often in the other prophets, but it's usually balanced in the other major and minor prophets, you get, you get judgment, discipline. Stop doing this or I'm going to punish you, but I'm a God who loves you. I have a place for you. There's, there's solace to be found in me. Come to me. Repent. Return to me. There's usually a balanced view. In Nahum, it's just judgment. It's just judgment. So if you're ready, let's turn to the book of Nahum together, and let's look at how this book begins. Look at Nahum Verse 1, we're going to take our message today really from the first chapter of Nahum. Nahum, as a, as a book, is outlined very simply. Really, the first chapter lays out God and his character. God and his character as a God of justice. And chapters 2 and 3 really lay out God's administration of his justice upon a particular nation. So chapters 2 and 3 are more vivid detail of how God is using and is punishing the people that he's punishing. So if you look at Nahum Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is an oracle concerning Nineveh. It's the, the book of the vision of Nahum. right? So th- what, I just want to break this down briefly. An oracle is a, is a future prophetic message, it's a prophetic message that's about what's about to take place in the future. And the way he received this prophetic message about the future is through a vision. Maybe it was a, a, a wake vision, a, a vision in a dream while he was asleep, but he, he saw a vision. God revealed to him in, in imagery, in a vision, what was going to happen to Nineveh. And so usually when you have a vision, you have more specific and vivid detail in a book. And you get that in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Nahum. You get this vivid detail of how God is going to execute his judgment on Nineveh. Unlike some of the more well-known prophets, we who kind of use their message they get from God and verbally address it to the people, this is a prophecy that's written down in a book. This wasn't something that is verbally addressed to the people. This is something that's written down for them in the form of a book. And so while this message is addressed to Nineveh, it's actually really not given directly to Nineveh it's given more directly to Judah to the southern kingdom of Judah than it is to Nineveh it's a con- prophecy concerning Nineveh but it's given to Judah and so we know a little bit about Nineveh right what what was the other book that we know of, about Nineveh Jonah talks a lot about Nineveh Nineveh of course is the capital city of you guys know the capital city of Assyria okay so Here's the thing with with Jonah, which you know well. Jonah is is giving a prophecy about judgment against Nineveh, against the people of Assyria. He doesn't want to go, and after a little fun living submarine ride, he finally gets there, and he gives this prophecy about the coming destruction of Nineveh. And of course, what happens, the people repent, and because they repent, God relents from his judgment, allows them to live another day, and that's where we kind of end off in Jonah. But here again, we've got the same nation, Assyria and Nineveh, coming up again because of their wickedness. In Jonah, they begin to draw the gaze of God because of their evil deeds, because of their vileness, the way that they oppress other nations, their wickedness towards humankind and their love for other gods. And so God, like he did before with Sodom and Gomorrah, says, you know what, Nineveh, you're going down. But they repent and they turn. Well, here again, not too much later, we have the same city, the same nation under fire from God. They've drawn the gaze of God because of their wickedness. And it's not that much further after they repented that now we have them under condemnation again. So clearly, their repentance didn't last. Their repentance didn't take their repentance was not complete in total. They turned away from their evil deeds, but they didn't stay with it because here they are again under the judgment of God. You might be wondering what the time gap is. The time gap here is about 150 years. So Jonah was around 722, somewhere around there, and about 150 years, maybe 25 years, give or take on either side. We're not sure on the date. All of a sudden, now again, we've got Assyria under the spotlight of God for judgment. If you're wondering, how can a nation... How can a nation in just that short amount of time go from repentance to being in the same boat? I want you to think about us real quick. 150 years is about the time from the Civil War to where we are now. The time from the Civil War to now. Think about what was going on in the Civil War with the oppression of people made in the image of God that were not being treated rightly. Sounds familiar, right? The abortion issue, the things that are going on in our country now. How could we have fallen so far? Well, here we go. An example of a nation who once... Repented and turned to God and now is fallen again. So why is it that God is against Syria? Well, if you remember from Jonah, Assyria is not a good nation. Assyria in the ancient empire is known for its wickedness, for its vileness, and most of all for its violence. I was, I was reading a little bit about this, and there is uh, some stories of the annals of the king from their conquests, and there's stories of miles of heads being placed on poles splayed out across the city. They would fillet people, take their skin, and drape them over the walls. This was common practice for the people of Assyria. Clearly, they didn't respect people made in the image of God. Clearly, they were violent. They were vile. They worshiped false gods. They were opposed to God, and they were opposed to his people. And so, clearly, Assyria's repentance didn't last, and so God was coming at them again because they had turned back to their violent ways, turned back to into the nation that God hated and wanted to punish. So why is it coming up again? What's the occasion for this? Well, during the reign of uh, one of the uh, kings here, Tiglath-Pleazar, the northern kingdom of Israel was forced to pay tribute towards this king to be able to Uh, in Assyria, to be able to try to survive. They were forced to pay tribute. And eventually, towards the end of the next Assyrian king, the northern kingdoms of, of Israel were conquered, right? They were kind of taken slowly into exile, never to return. This happens right before the prophecy of Nahum. So the kingdom of Assyria has come into the northern kingdoms of Israel, and they've taken the people away. And so in Nahum's day, the surviving southern kingdom of Judah... Is facing the same threat. Manasseh, the king of Judah, who was a bad king, made a, a kind of a, a plea deal with the king of Assyria, and he got taken away into Babylon. But now the people of Judah are thinking, "This isn't going to go well for us." Just like the king of the northern uh, northern tribes just like they were kind of taken away into exile after their evil king did something bad, now we have an evil king that's done something bad with Assyria, and now we're going to get taken. So there's a fear. There's a fear that this, this Assyrian empire is going to come and do the same thing to the northern empire, to the southern empire as it did to the northern empire. So what God does is he gives a vision to Nahum concerning this vile city of Assyria about 150 years after the prophecy of jonah saying and after the conquest of the northern tribes and is saying i have something for you judah that you need to hear and at first blanche this could be a little bit jarring i want you to look at how this book opens up in verse two listen to how this book opens up the lord yahweh is a jealous and avenging god the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. What a start to a book that is. What Jonah is doing for us in the outline, or what, what Nahum is doing for us in the outline of this book, is, he is he's laying out who God is before he lays out what God does. And this, that's how, usually how it flows. We need to know what, what God does flows out of who he is. God is a God of love, and so he acts out in love. God is a God of grace, and so he acts graciously. It's because of who he is. And here we see that God is an avenging, wrathful, jealous, and angry God, and the rest of the book pours out of that. Now, these are not typical words that we like to use to describe God, right? This isn't your go-to Christian vernacular when someone says, Tell me about your God at the Irvine Spectrum, and you're saying, Okay, he's angry, uh, he's wrathful, he's uh, jealous over his people, and he's going to pour out wrath upon his enemies, which includes you. <laughs> right? This is not our go-to. This, is not our, this isn't our common thing, right? We like to be like, God is a God of love, He's got a God of mercy. It's all true, yes, but we don't go to these, right? Could you imagine starting off your com- Christian evangelistic conversations with those phrases? And when you hear those things, you imagine, yeah, man, a, an unbeliever, someone who is opposed to God, that's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable language to hear that God is a God of wrath. But but what about for us? Well, for us, it should be the opposite. For us, hearing these phrases should bring us a sense of comfort. It's interesting that Nahum, the word Nahum, literally means comfort. So when Judah's opening this book, and they say, here's a prophecy of Nahum. Prophecy of comfort is what they're reading. And then it starts with, God is a jealous and avenging God who pours out wrath upon his enemies. This is meant to be a comfort. It's not a comfort to those he's pouring his wrath out upon. It's a comfort to those who are being oppressed. It's a comfort to those who are the target of this evil empire. And so this message is a message of comfort. And really, that's our, our first point Because I think that this is something that we, as believers, need to think of. That God's judgment, his vengeance, is something that should comfort us. We need to find comfort in God's vengeance. We should find comfort in God's vengeance. And when we hear those words, you might say, that that doesn't make any sense. How can we find comfort in those words? I'm not even sure if those are good words. And you would be right to some degree if you're thinking from a human perspective. When we hear jealousy... Anger, wrath, vengeance. And you're thinking from a human perspective. Maybe you're picturing someone in your mind that, that has those qualities. Maybe you're thinking of yourself as sometimes you you get into that mode where you're doing that. Those are negative, sinful things. When we are angry and wrathful and jealous, those are things that we repent of, we turn from, we apologize for. And so you may be thinking, how can this be a good thing that we can find comfort in? Well, well, when God acts according to these things these qualities they're not administered like us where we get out of control with our emotions where we we let them overcome us and we just react when god acts according to these qualities it's in full accordance with his justice he never goes too far he never makes a mistake he always administers these qualities perfectly you know as a dad sometimes disciplining your kid can be tough. And I think one of the reasons why it's tough is because it's hard to administer punishment in just the right way, isn't it? You never know if you're going too soft or you're going too hard. You never know if you're going too far. Sometimes it can even get to the point where your wife says, hey, you know what, go and discipline the kid, you know, did something wrong. You go in and discipline the kid. She says, no, not that one, the other one, right? We can mess up so easily in our judgment that we administer. Our justice is not perfect. It's flawed. But with God, when he acts according to his judgment, when he judges, he does so with accordance with his perfect justice. He does it perfectly rightly. When God acts in judgment, he never goes too far. He never makes a mistake. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. What this is saying is God's in complete control of these attributes. He's not overwhelmed by emotions or feelings like we are. He's not like a child. He's not capricious. He's deliberate in his acts of punishment. He's right on the money. He's always able to administer them rightly. Again, if you're you're used to thinking just, oh, God's love, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, Nahum can seem shocking at first. But this is a definitive statement about God's character. God is these things. God is avenging and angry and full of wrath. It may be jarring, but in the midst of oppression, in the midst of people who are against you and against God and are opposing him, those who are violent and who practice injustice, this statement offers comfort and hope, and it should for us as well. And it does, first and foremost, because of the God who administers this judgment. Because God is perfect and a just God. We find comfort in God's vengeance because it is administered perfectly by a perfect God. It's always administered in the right way, and it's always administered to the right party. Notice in verse 2, it says that the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps, he stores up wrath for his enemies. It's not against his family. It's not against those whom he loves. It's not against his beloved, his chosen people. It's against his enemies. So we find comfort that God is not opposed to those whom he loves, but opposed to his enemies. We also know that God's judgment is sure. It's swift. It's absolute. Look at verse 3. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And then here's a great line that we should all have in our back pocket. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. That is a definitive statement right there about what God will do with the guilty. By no means will God clear the guilty. It says, His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. What this means is when God comes in judgment, He's coming swiftly. A storm in these parts could pop up in an instant. In an absolute instance, a storm or a whirlwind dropping down from the sky just appears and it's there. God's judgment is like that it's swift and it's sure. It says, the clouds are the dust of his feet. It's this imagery that God, as he rushes across the face of the earth to provide judgment against his enemies, he's going so quickly and swiftly, he's stirring up the clouds like a dust trail behind him. Then it says that he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He's saying the things that you know in life that are, that are sure, the things that you trust in, the things that you have confidence in, the things that are unmovable and certain, God is more certain in his judgment than even that. By no means will he clearly be guilty, but he is more certain than the fact that the sea is wet. He's saying that God, in his judgment, is so sure, it's so certain, it's so total, that even the sea becomes dry. He dries up all the rivers, the things that you expect to stay and remain. They don't last. Bashan and Carmel, the fertile plains of the area in that day, where all the fruit and produce would come from, they wither up. The bloom of Lebanon, this is talking about the cedars of Lebanon, the great and mighty trees that are so revered that we read about all over Israel, those sure and stable things, they wither. Those things aren't stable. What is stable is God's judgment. The mountains quake, the hills melt, the earth, He's before Him, the foundation of the earth that we so trust is going to be stable, that moves. Before God, God is coming swiftly and surely to execute his judgment. God's judgment, his vengeance, is also total in its nature. It's not only sure that he's coming, he's coming swiftly, but it's total. Look at verse 6. It says, Who can stand before his indignation? The answer to that is no one, obviously. Who can endure the heat of his anger? No one. His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. He's literally saying there's a giant boulder and it's broken. When a rock is broken, when a boulder is broken, it's total. You can't put it back together. It says in verse 8, skip to verse 8, with an overflowing flood, an overflowing flood, more than is necessary, he will make a complete end of his adversaries a complete end of his adversaries he will pursue them into darkness this is the idea that when god comes against an army and the army is there and they're fleeing that god doesn't just let them flee out into the night to find shelter and cover he pursues them and finds each one of his enemies and takes his judgment and vengeance says in verse 9 what do you plot against the lord he will make a complete end trouble will not rise up a second time when God judges, he judges in a total way. They will not rise up a second time. You know, sometimes I wish I could administer justice this way. Particularly in my house, we have a... My wife has a, has a sure hatred for spiders. And it's not uncommon that my wife will go out with, you know, that, that gallon jug from Home Depot with the little spray wand. She will administer justice. And I just hear her screaming out there. And uh, it's, I, I you know I can do it, but it's just fun to watch her. Um, she's stomping. She's smashing them with the wand. And she's administering justice. And she, she comes in satisfied. I've killed them all, right? I, I've, I've taken care of all those little monsters. Until about a week later, uh, when we see the web start forming again. And we've got to go do it again. You know, when God executes judgment, there's no rising up a second time. It's total. There's no coming back from that. It's ultimate. It's, it's a total and complete judgment. On the good end of this, when God punishment punishes people, when he judges his enemies, it means freedom for the oppressed. Look at verses 12 and 13 in chapter 1. It says, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, though they are strong, they will be cut off, cut down and pass away says though i've afflicted you i will afflict you no more and now i will break assyria's yoke off of you judah i will burst your bonds apart i will set you free god's punishment of his enemies sets the people free it says in chapter 3 verse 19 says all those who hear about the destruction of nineveh and assyria clap their hands they clap their hands they have joy I think this probably also includes Jonah from heaven, right? Saying, "Oh man, finally they got what's coming to him." For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil, God? When He judges, He frees the oppressed. Men, we see far too much injustice in this world, do we not? Whether it's to the far extreme, the extreme of a repressive regime in some foreign African country that is committing genocide against his people and it just goes untouched, whether it's a a dictator who is destroying people by the thousands, whether it's some charismatic cult leader who's leading people astray, leading them even to their death. Maybe it's a serial killer who's gone uncaptured, a kidnapper, a murderer who gets released because of some technicality in the courts. We see injustice all the time. It's, It's So prevalent in our world we we deal with it daily and maybe it's not that extreme Maybe it's something a little bit more subtle. Maybe it's a Christian shop owner who has their business fail because they wouldn't serve a certain person Maybe it's a kid who gets bullied or made fun of at school because they bring their Bible to school We see oppression and injustice all the time For us we are called and told and commanded that judgment and vengeance is not ours We don't administer it rightly. We don't do it right, but there is a God who stands against those who oppress and do wrong and do injustice, and that God is the God who fights and defends us, who supports and comes alongside of us, and who administers his judgment perfectly. We should find comfort in the fact that God is just and that he by no means will clear the guilty. That's a comforting fact for us. Find comfort. In the fact that God is administering justice in a sure and total way. That he's coming swiftly to do it. That nothing can stop him. And when he does it, he frees the oppressed and he sets the scales of justice correctly. By no means will God let the guilty go unpunished. We should take comfort in that. And yet, at the same time, the next logical question is this. If God by no means will clear the guilty, how then anybody, does anybody get cleared? How does anybody get cleared? Since we all fall short of the glory of God, we know this. Psalm 14, there is not one who does good. They have all turned aside. Together, they have all become corrupt. There is not one who does good. No, not one. Not one is free from the condemnation of God. Not one is is said innocent. They're all guilty. We're all guilty. We all need shelter from the wrath of an angry God. Everybody needs shelter. There's not anything that we have inside of us that can stand before God. We need shelter. We need some form of shelter. So the question becomes, when you, when disaster comes, what do you run to? Where do you find your shelter? Where do you place your hope for deliverance? I think we need to think about this more often because we tend to, to move away from this quickly after we become saved. We run to Christ, but then we find shelter in other things. Men, do you find shelter in your possessions? Do you, do you run and find refuge in your bank account? In your nest egg? In your income? In your home? In your stuff? Do you run? Do you find shelter in those things? Do you find shelter in your own strength as a man? Your ability to provide an income, your own skill set, your reputation, your mind, your knowledge, your own body. Do you find shelter in others? Maybe in a boss or a coworker or spouse or family member or some friends or some allies that you have? you run to them? It's not always bad to run to those people, but do you find shelter in them? Do you find shelter in political leaders, a certain political leader? Do you find shelter in systems? What about the government? Do you trust in the nation, in the government? Do you run, find refuge in the stock market, in the economy, and say, these are sure and fixed things? What are your strongholds that you run to? What are the strongholds that you run to, and how strong are they really? How sure, how certain are they? Because like the book of Nahum, the Assyrians would run to different places to find their shelter, and all of them melted away. Every single one of them fell before God. They took refuge in things, and God completely decimated those things. I want you to turn over to chapter 3. I actually want to show you this in the book of Nahum. Chapter 3, starting in verse 11. The Assyrians, they're going to try to go into hiding from God's judgment. They're going to try to seek refuge from their enemy, Babylon, that's coming against them to destroy them. And it says all the things that they try to take refuge in. It says in verse 12 that their are fortresses. They try to take refuge in their fortresses, their high walls. But God says their fortresses are like fig trees. When the fruit is ripe, he just shakes it and they fall right down as walls. They just crumble. They try to take refuge in their troops, the ferocity of their warriors, their great military strength. But it says in verse 13 that, Behold, their troops are like women in their midst. This means that they become weak. It says in verse 13 that the gates of their land that they trust in, that they hide behind, they're wide open to their enemies. Fires devoured the balls, and bars melted it. In verse 16, it says that they trust in their economy. It says their merchants have spread out across the stars of the heaven. The locust spreads out its wings and flies away. Assyria had a great, great vast network. They had traders everywhere and they trusted in that. They said, this will keep us alive. This will sustain us as a nation, as a people. We can run and hide in that. Even their government was strong. It says in verse 17, their princes were everywhere, like grasshoppers. Their scribes, their bureaucracy, the people that they had, they were like clouds across the face of the world. But then it says, when the sun rises, they they all fly away. They all leave. No one knows where they're going to go. No one knows where they are. They depart. They trusted in their allies. It says in verse 18 that they're shepherds, they're asleep. They're they're out there and they're they're the ones that are supposed to gather the people of Assyria back, but they're not there. Their people are scattered, but their allies aren't there to support them. They can't even trust their own strength to heal themselves. Whatever they have inherent in themselves is not sufficient. verse 18 says, sorry, verse 19 it says, There's no ease in your hurt. Your wound is too grievous. Your wound is too big for your immune system to kick back in and heal yourself. You're going to die of this wound. You don't have enough strength in and of yourself. So the people of Assyria, they run, not like they did in Jonah to God in repentance. They run to their strongholds. But we know that there's only one sure stronghold, only one sure place. And the same God who punishes the guilty, the same God who punishes the guilty is the same God who provides the shelter from his wrath. When we rightly comprehend the nature of God's justice against his enemies, it should cause us, force us to flee and run into the one sufficient place of shelter from the onslaught. And that's our second point. We are to take refuge in God's provision and God's provision alone. We're to take refuge in God's provision and his provision alone. There is one verse in the book of Nahum, one verse that is a a call to Judah for what they should do in the midst of what they see happening to their enemy, Assyria. And it's verse seven in chapter one. It says, the Lord... In the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all this chaos, the Lord, he's good. Why is he good? Well, he's good because he opposes his enemies. He's good because he brings judgment. We should find comfort in that. But he's also good because he is a stronghold. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He not only provides judgment against his enemies that we find comfort in, but he provides refuge for those whom he knows and loves. Now, we we know this, men, that Jesus is our refuge. But when we compare this weight of judgment and glory, I think it gives us a better picture of what God has done in Jesus, that his sure and total and ultimate justice, that he must condemn and punish the guilty, that that has got to happen. It has to happen. We are sinners and it has to be paid. God's wrath must be satisfied. And so in Christ, he pulls out, pours out the full measure of that wrath. He pours up his cup of wrath and it's overflowing and Christ drinks every last drop for us. The punishment of sin that we should feel, the weightiness of what God does to Assyria is also put on to us And yet, in Christ, our sure refuge, in our fortress, he takes the burden and the penalty and pays the punishment of our sin on our behalf and gives us his righteousness in return. God is the only sure source of refuge. He's the only fortress. In Christ, we have a fortress that we can rely on. And we know, we know that when we take refuge in Christ, that the totality of God's wrath The same way that it's total against Assyria, it's total against Christ. That no longer do we have to pay the punishment of sin. No longer do we have to face the consequences of our guiltiness before God because it was paid in Christ totally. It says in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus, he committed no sin. He was not guilty. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Nothing he did even to the point of his words was sinful before God. When he was reviled, when he was gone against, when he was talked down to, he did not revile in return. He didn't take judgment and justice into his own hands. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to, the, to him, to God who judges justly. That Jesus, when, when he was opposed wrongly as the unguilty party on behalf of our guilt and our sin, he didn't take justice into his own hands. He continued to entrust himself to God, whose character it is to be a just and loving God, the one who judges justly. Because of that, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin, that our sin might be laid on him and that might die in him and that we might crucify and kill sin in our lives and that we might live to righteousness. It's by his wounds his punishment that we are healed. We need to take comfort in God's vengeance, knowing that He opposes enemies, but we also need to find, take refuge in God's provision. And lastly, and we'll just cover this briefly, there's one more line that's given to Judah in the book of Nahum in chapter 1. When we recognize God and his justice, that he's a God of wrath and he takes vengeance and he opposes enemies and we find that we are to his enemies and yet we can take refuge in Christ, the response to this should be a response of delight. We should delight in God's deliverance. Our response to the justice of God should be one of delight. It says in verse 15 of chapter one, speaking to Judah, it says, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. He says to Judah, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Celebrate the things that I have done for you. says, fulfill your vows. Come into the temple. Fulfill your vows. Come and worship me. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Men, never again shall the the condemnation of sin come against us because of the refuge that we have in Christ. The full weight of God's justice has been levied on him, and so we should delight. We should come into his courts with thanksgiving, with praise. We should delight. We should be people who think often about the deliverance we have from the wrath of God. And we need to stay in that place of provision. We need to take refuge and stay there. Not like Assyria. Not like Nineveh who turned and then went right back to it. But we need to stay there and delight there dwell there. Because God's provided a means of escape from his judgment, and we need to grab hold of it. And then we need to go one step further and delight in it. And so for us to rightly respond to God, we need to have a full measure of who God is. We need to understand his wrath and his justice and his anger. And then we need to respond to that. We need to take comfort in the fact that God is a God of justice, that he takes vengeance upon his enemies. We need to take refuge in the one place we can, in Christ and God. And we need to delight that he's delivered us. I want to close with reading Psalm 46, a well-known psalm, but I think this encapsulates not only who God is and what he does and his justice, but also our response and our place of refuge. So listen to this as, as I read Psalm 46, and then we'll close. It says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very persistent help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, those waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, Behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations to the earth. He makes wars cease and puts to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, we... We recognize, Lord, that you are a just God. That you are so righteous in your utter perfections that nothing sinful or wicked can come before you. That a nation like Assyria who did vile and wicked things before you, Lord, you put your hand of judgment upon them and you utterly wipe them out by the hands of the Babylonians. And Lord... We look at that and we want to find comfort in the fact that there is so much injustice in this world and yet you promise as a God of justice that you will not let anything go unpunished. And yet we recognize in the midst of our own sinfulness that we are worthy of that punishment. The total and sure and swift punishment because of our sin should be levied onto us and yet you levied on Christ and Lord. We want to praise you for that. We want to delight in that. We want to take refuge not in the things in this world that we so quickly and can easily run to for shelter, but to run ultimately to you daily, remembering what your son has done for us, remembering the place of refuge that he is against the storm of your judgment and indignation, that we recognize that you have made the provision against your wrath for us and that we can take hold of it, delight in it and dwell in it. God, I pray for these men that we would dwell in the shelter of Christ, that we would... Run swiftly to the shelter of Christ daily, that we would stay there, that we would dwell there, that we would not build up fortresses around us that that fail us, but that we would run daily to the thing that we know is sure in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for even this book of Nahum that we we don't know well, Lord, but we know it has much to communicate to us, and we're so grateful for that. We pray for the rest of our time this morning, for us that have to go to work and and do our daily tasks, Lord, that you would help this message today, your word that has been communicated today, be something that resounds in our mind, that we take constant refuge and delight in you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.